Let's pray. Father, uh, we would ask that that indeed would be the reality that as we come before You, Lord, that You would indeed speak. Lord, You would help us to see the idols that we've created, that we may repent of them. Lord, that You may see, help us see the damaged relationships, Lord, that we've contributed to, that we may go and in humility before You and before the person. Lord, seek to heal them. Lord, we commit this time to You in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. We're in the middle of a series on marriage called Missing Pieces. And we're happen to be in a section of that. Yeah, I don't do it by sermons. I do it by sections. Um, on conflict. Now, this what I have to share today has a lot to do with not just marriage, though. It's much bigger than that. It's how we engage with one another in relationships. I wanted to start out telling you a story, though, about a man and a wife who had been married for almost 50 years. They shared everything, but... The one thing the old man's, wife, old man's wife asked him to never do was to look into an old shoebox that she kept on the top shelf of her closet. Not thinking anything of it, and that's what I don't get. Um, the old man honored her wishes and never even asked about the contents. He just figured that it was just one of those things. Not sure what one of those things are, but hey, it's a story. One day, when the old, old woman had fallen ill, uh, she didn't have much longer to live. She called her husband to her hospital bedside and told him that it was time for him to take out the, the shoebox and to look inside. The old man went home, grabbed the box, and opened it. Inside, there were two crocheted dolls and bundles of money totaling $95,000. Honey, do you have something like that? <laughs> but Why? How? He stuttered. He was totally confused. His wife told him, right after we got married, or right before we got married, my grandmother told me the secret to a happy marriage was to never argue. She said that if you ever get angry with your husband, you should just keep quiet and crochet a doll. The old man was touched there were, all, after all, only two dolls in the shoebox. She had only been angry with him twice over the course of their 50-year marriage. He scooped up his wife and gave her a big kiss. But where did all the money come from? He asked her. Oh, that, she said with a smile. That's the money I got from selling the dolls. <laughs> I had to share that. The Internet is great. In marriage, there will be conflict. It's inevitable and it's difficult to deal with, right? Anybody here like conflict? It depends on if I'm bored or not, you know. (laughs) Um, People respond differently to conflict. We talked about this last week. And a man named Kenneth Sadie, Sandy, uh, he is head of a ministry called uh, Peacemakers. And he identified three categories of the way, three different ways in which men or women deal with conflict. The first way is a peace faker. 
And peacemakers are those people who will avoid conflict at all costs. They cherish, they cherish avoidance. They cherish calmness. However, whenever you have a peacemaker, you're married to a peacemaker, or if you are a peacemaker, you realize that the conflict never goes away, right? It just kind of builds and builds and builds and builds. And pretty soon, you become bitter and angry. And the relationship is hollowed out. There are peace fakers and there are peace breakers. Peace breakers are those who cherish power. They love to be the ones who make the definitive statements, this is the way it's going to be. They're the ones who say, you're wrong and I'm right. They're the ones who say, I've got to win this argument. And they tend to use power in whatever means necessary to get what they want. The good news here is that Jesus gives a very different perspective, a very different and life-giving vision in how to handle conflict. For those who are disciples, those who have said, I've entered into the kingdom of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, I don't want within my kingdom, I don't have room or space for those who are peace fakers or peace breakers. I have a very different life-giving vision for what it looks like to become redemptive in our relationships with one another, especially in our marriages. And they're called peacemakers. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the peacemakers. They're not the peacekeepers. They tend to be peace fakers. But blessed are the peacemakers. They take on a redemptive role in the the lives of of others. They are the ones... And that's an emphasis there. They, they are the ones who will be called sons of God. And that's not just a description of a person. That's a title that is bestowed upon an individual. It's a title. He doesn't say they are children of God because that would be different. He says they are sons of God. In Jewish theology and thinking and culture, if someone was called a son of someone, it, you were describing a person and you were saying, you are like your father's character. You have your father's heart. And so that's why Jesus looks at these people and He says, if you're going to be a peacemaker, you are taking on the heart and the character of my father, of your father, in the area of conflict. And how you choose to handle that. Now, how does that happen? Over time, God forms within us His heart and His character and how we approach conflict. Let me put it to you in the words of 1 Peter where he says, when we come to know Christ, we are made partakers in the divine nature. There is something deep that is planted within our souls that is rooted and tapped into the very power of God, the very nature of God, that begins to rewrite our whole operating system if you are a nerd or a person who's into computers. Okay? It begins to change you from the inside out. And that's a challenge. But it takes place over time. And it's done through the power of the Holy Spirit as we surrender to God. This is His vision for us in community that we would be peacemakers, that we would take 
on a redemptive role whenever there is conflict. This is His vision for us in our marriages. That whenever there is conflict, rather than fighting with one another, we would seek to take on a redemptive role in terms of engaging that. Last week we looked at the heart or the commitment of a peacemaker. Now, uh, peacemakers are those who have a wholehearted commitment to do everything within their power. They don't have all power, but within their power to repair damaged relationships, develop healthy relationships, and call others to do the same. This week we're going to look at the heart of a peacemaker. What is the heart that God forms within us through His Holy Spirit that begins a conversion and works its way through us and out of us throughout our whole life as we surrender to Him. What is that? Peacemakers have learned over time and through maturity and through surrender to God that when conflict erupts, when conflict erupts, they begin to realize that God is at work in me. That when conflict erupts, God is at work within me. I think that we ask the wrong questions when there is conflict. Kim and I were hiking the other day on Friday up at uh, Tiana Way, some state park up on the peninsula. We were talking about this. But I think that when conflict erupts, we're asking the wrong questions. The wrong questions, when we ask the wrong questions, the wrong questions sabotage the very redemptive work that God wants to do in our life and relationships. Okay, so we've got to make sure that we're asking the right questions if we're to be able to understand what God is seeking to do. The wrong question is this. Who's at fault? Who is at fault? Who is at fault? And pretty soon your eyes begin to scan your spouse and you begin to demonize him and it says, well, because the answer to that question is obvious. She's at fault or he's at fault, right? And you begin to demonize that person. And you begin to focus on what they may have or may have not done. But some of you may be asking, but Martin, what happens if I'm not at fault and they really are? (laughs) What happens if the other person really is at fault? And I'm saying this, it's not about blame. We should not be asking questions about blame necessarily or who's at fault. And quite likely, there is more than enough fault to go around. What my problem is, is that when conflict erupts, we quickly default to either avoiding the problem, denying the problem, or blaming the problem on your spouse and fighting back. So the wrong question is not who is at fault. If we approach conflict in that way, we actually begin to sabotage the very redemptive process that God wants to do in my life and in the relationship as well. It's like it creates a toxin that goes within us and says, obviously, you're at fault. That's the wrong question. The right question is this, is that when conflict erupts, What are the backstage issues, this conflict, that God is using this conflict to expose within my own life? It doesn't matter who's at fault. It's how am I dealing with this. It's what is is rising up within my own life. 
that I've wanted to keep stuffed away and hidden and maybe didn't even know was there. Conflict always exposes what I call backstage issues. Issues of my character. Issues of identity. Issues of my own belief system. Belief systems that say, it can't be my fault, it's got to be her fault. Remember David and Nabal? In uh, 1 Samuel 25, for those of you who aren't familiar with the story, King David was, was out in the wilderness and he was running from Saul. And he runs across, he settled into this area and he, he creates sort of a cultural liaison pact with some of the area shepherds and businessmen. And he provides protection for them. And they provide him proceeds from the slaughter of their animals in harvest season and stuff like that. Well, David had been doing this for a man whose name was Nabal. And Nabal, when it came down to came to the end of the season, they were having a big party and they were slaughtering the sheep and they were raising up, they were harvesting the grain and all this stuff. David sends his men over to him and says, hey, can we have our portion for the protection and just for this culturally accepted relationship, this partnership that we have. And Nabal looked at his men and he insulted David. He said, I don't have any idea who you guys are. And he embarrassed them. He shamed them in very disgraceful ways. And David's men left and they went back. And David, all of a sudden, he has this conflict with Nabal. And everything within David rises up. He says, we're going to go kill this man. As far as God is my witness, may God do to me what I intend to do to this man if I don't do it to this man. This guy's going to die. And he marches away. And on his way there, you just see him fuming and angry. And it's just bringing up all of this stuff. And you've got to ask the question, gee, what's going on in David's backstage? A lot of stuff is going on in David's backstage. His pride... His arrogance, his demand for respect, all of that stuff was creating this toxic cauldron that was going to go in ahead and just be lashed out, unleashed upon these people. But God is merciful. Nabal's wife, Abigail, finds out and she goes to him and she brings him stuff that Nabal should have gave, given to him. And she says, you're right, this man is a fool, but David, listen to me on this. Remember who you are. You are a prince of Israel. Wow. That's redemptive. Stops David in his tracks. And says, you are right. You are right. Conflict always brings up within us, regardless of who is at fault, the wrong question. The right question is, what is this conflict rising up, raising up, exposing that's been hidden away on my backstage? That part that no one else sees. They only see the front stage. But when you pull back the curtain, what's back there? Conflict will expose that. And you know what? God doesn't keep us. God doesn't keep us from experiencing conflict, right? 
Instead, he says, let's see what comes out when so-and-so pokes you here. Because I want to deal with that. What are some of the things that come out of your life, out of your backstage, that kind of peek out from behind the curtain when conflict erupts in your life? Arrogance that produces a commitment to control. James 3 talks about a duplicitous heart. One who says, on Sunday mornings you're here worshiping, but on Monday mornings when things happen and things go wrong, you're drawing from a very different well that's demonic. Anger, that when I don't get my way or when I don't get what I deserve, then... How about unresolved wounds and bitterness that result in that feed bitterness and contempt? How about personal idols? I was thinking about this the other day as Kim and I were walking. Um, Personal idols are those expectations that I demand that another person meet on my behalf. And we have very good ways of justifying it. We've talked a lot around here about the whole issue in marriage of love and respect, right? Men hunger and crave unconditional respect. That's their love language. That's what they need. That's life to them. Women crave unconditional love. That's life to them. And God puts us together so that we might minister to one another in those ways with that understanding, right? So what happens when your wife doesn't give you unconditional respect? In fact, she disrespects you. Well, if you're like me, sometimes that might happen. Sometimes that might happen. It might happen. I'm not saying it does. I'm saying it might happen. And when it does, if it were to happen, I could just sense and project that within me there would be rising up within me just a great deal of anger. A demandingness. Now, it's real easy for a man who feels that way, if that were to ever happened, happen, would feel like, wow, I demand respect. After all, God made me as a man, and as a man, He made me to crave and need res- unconditional respect. Or take it from the female perspective. A husband comes home and he's not very loving. If that were to happen, I'm not saying it does, but just on the chance that if that were to ever happen, And the wife begins to rise up and she begins to feel like, wow, my husband, uh, you know, he's not showing me that unconditional love that God gave me the need to receive from him. All of a sudden, anger and bitterness begins to rise up. If that were to happen, can you feel what I mean? Can you feel it? Yeah, a couple of you going, if that were to happen, we're not saying it is. We're not confessing our sins to one another. And we become very justified in saying and holding on to anger and bitterness and unforgiveness that could result as a result of that. Now, some of you may be asking the question, Martin, does that mean that, uh, that God didn't make me with those needs? No, God did make you with those cravings, those desires, that need. He made you with those desires. But you know what happens in our own sin nature and as a result of the backstage stuff? We take those desires and we turn them into idols. We take those desires and we make them demands. And we say, I demand that you respect me. I demand that you love me. Should your husband love you and should your wife respect you? Yes. 
But when you take that from a desire to a demand, you've turned it into a God from a God-given need to a, a sinful idol. And conflict begins to erupt, right? From within. Sometimes, if that were to happen within your marriage, God is exposing something within you. He is exposing an idol. And when we don't get what we long for, when we don't get what we feel we should be able to expect from another person, we go from in community to this demonic demonization of the other person where we begin to challenge, we begin to question, we begin to, to uh, put them down in our own minds. Anybody ever do that? You may not ever say anything to the person, but in your mind it's very active. Ever feel that way? Anybody? Oh, come on. I'm not the only one. Yes, 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 yes! I see those hands. I see those hands. So the question is, is what do we do with this backstage garbage that just comes flowing out? Should we get a bigger cork and just take and stuff it into the bottle of our emotions and never let them out and just say, ah, forget it. I'm just going to try harder and harder and harder to keep that backstage stuff on the backstage. I'm not just going to have a curtain. I'm going to have a wall. And it's going to be double wall. And it's going to be reinforced at every joint so that stuff never comes out of there. Is that what we do? No. We've got to understand this. That when the very work of God that He wants to do in our life that comes about as a result of the conflict that we experience, He says, I want to change that. I don't want you to cork that stuff. I want you to bring it before me and I want you to pray with me and I want you to ask me to take you on this journey where I begin to change it. And I get rid of that backstage garbage. You see what he's doing? You see what I'm saying? It's incredibly important that when conflict erupts, God is passionate and committed to do a work in us. But we've got to stop asking the wrong question of who's at fault. And we need to start asking the right question of God, what do you want to do in my life with the stuff that's coming out? That's the first thing that begins to happen in the heart of a peacemaker who's being formed by the power of the gospel. The second is this is that when conflict erupts, when conflict erupts, humble yourself first. When conflict erupts, pull back. Pull back and say, God, I humble myself before You. Jesus talks in Matthew 7, starting in verse 1, and just read this, hear this, as I read it from a different perspective. He says this, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank that's in your own eye? How do you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will clearly see 
to remove the speck from your brother's eye. There is a redemptive role. But it will never ever happen if we're focused on the question of who's at fault. Jesus is trying to get us to see something here. He's trying to get us, he's trying to point out the, the, this, this reality that says our default, whenever there is conflict with another brother or sister, or even with our spouse or with our children, he's trying to tell us that our default is naturally as fallen people is to minimize my own junk and magnify the other person's junk. We minimize our own stuff we've, and we maximize, we magnify theirs. And Jesus says, you got it all wrong. They've got the speck, you've got the plank. But we think, no, I don't have the plank, I have the speck, they have the plank. And Jesus says, no, that's the wrong perspective. you got it all wrong. You have the plank, they have the speck. Jesus says, as long as that's what you're focused on, if you're focused on the fact that you really believe that your spouse or your child or your neighbor has the plank and you have the speck, the conflict will never be resolved. It will just go on and on and on. So he says, stop. Pull back. Humble yourself and be teachable before God. That when conflict erupts, we come before God and we say, God, show me what it is that needs, before I even talk to my spouse, before I even talk to my kids, before I even talk to my neighbor, show me, show me what needs to be addressed in my own heart that's coming out from the backstage. My own stuff, God. What does this conflict reveal about the work that you want to do in my life? But what happens if you don't know what those issues are? (laughs) This is the hard part. You're not only teachable before God, but you're teachable before your spouse. And you go to your spouse and you ask the question, what did I do to contribute to this problem? And if they say, well, you really did nothing. If they say that. I'm not saying that they will, but if they say that. Then the question that you can ask yourself is this, what kind of person does my spouse need me to be in this difficult time? What do I need, what kind of person do I need to bring to the table that we may be able to resolve this and grow through this in a healthy redemptive way. Okay? Incredibly important. And then what steps need to be taken for the healing and health? Um, And then what do I need to do to help facilitate this? Folks, this is the heart of a peacemaker. This is the heart and the process of developing as a peacemaker. Okay, now I want to stop there, and I, you guys have been asking great questions, difficult questions, and so I've developed a brain trust. And I'm going to invite Jim and Sandra to come on up, as well as my wife, and they get to help me answer some questions. 
So, Nate, if you would grab the mic. And uh, you guys can choose to sit down if you wish. Or... So, who would like to who would like to go first? And we'll need we'll need a mic out there so that the questions can be heard. Nate. Okay. Anybody like to go first? Oh, wow. All right, let's close in prayer. All right. <laughs> okay, someone asked me a question this morning, Jeff Forrester. So, Jeff, where are you? We'll go in ahead and we'll prime the pump with Jeff. Um, the question I think I asked you this morning um, had to do with last week's sermon. Uh, Martin, you had said that if our horizontal relationships with each other are not in good standing, then our vertical relationship with God will not be in good standing. But I've heard previously that um, if our vertical relationship is not right, our horizontal relationships with each other won't be right. So is there an order to these things? Is something first or second? Can you speak to that a little bit? Okay, who would like to take that on first? Jim. Um, well, let me try and take a shot at that. I think they go hand in hand. I don't think it matters whether you, you start out and say, I have a problem with this individual, and not recognize that you have a problem with God. And conversely, I don't think there's any difference. Either one says we have the same problem. We have a relational problem with God, and then we have a relational problem with each other. It always starts with us. We have to always look at every situation from what is wrong with me? What am I doing wrong that contributes? And then from that position, we can really dig into how to help others and to improve our relationship with God and let Him work in our lives. Okay. Can I correct you? Yes. <laughs> Please do. This is good. Okay. Page fighting one. begins here, all right? Well, I would say if you're talking about an order to know who you are and what you have to do, you need to go to your Heavenly Father. So I think the link is first vertical before it's horizontal. Without the relationship between me and my Heavenly Father being stronger and cleaner and clearer every day, I'm not going to be effective with the horizontal plane. See, I realize how I married up. <laughs> I, would, I would add to this, that when we want and we pursue a strong vertical relationship with our Father, our horizontal relationships will challenge that. And God is okay with that. He will allow our horizontal relationships to challenge how sincere we are in the, in, the, in the pursuit of our relationship with Him. So if we hold on to anger and bitterness, 
amongst one another. We're not resolving that conflict that you have or I have with my spouse uh, or even my children. I'm not doing everything within my power to repair damaged relationships, restore broken, uh, develop healthy relationships and call others to do otherwise, (laughs) the same thing. If we're not doing that, God says, don't you think, if you take that as the trajectory of your choice and of your life and lifestyle, if that's the way in which you choose to walk, don't you think that this is going to be strong? It drives me nuts when I see on Facebook people post great things about their relationship with God, but I know that in their horizontal relationship, they're in the toilet and not doing anything about it. And they're okay with that. Because they're placing blame and calling out fault in other people. Think, no, you are deceived. You are deceived. We are deceived when we think that we can have this without this. It just doesn't happen. Okay? Other questions? Yes, Jason, come on down. Okay, this is going to take all four of us, all right? I was half thinking that, Martin, we should just get together and complain about Facebook sometime. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, so my question has to do with uh, conflict in in dating versus marriage. Uh, In in some ways, since we got married three years ago, uh, conflict has become harder, but in some ways it's become easier because we're married. We're in it for the long haul. There's no question of, you know, do I walk away? Do I break this off? It's always solve it. There's no question anymore. It's always solve it. Uh, and there was always just kind of that, that fear, that insecurity, that uh, difficulty in knowing before we were married, like, uh, is this a sign we break it off, or is this conflict that we work through? And I was hoping uh, you might be able to help bring some clarity to that, help round that out. Before you're married, at what point do you figure, okay, this is a make-it-or-break-it moment, and when do you decide, okay, we work through this? Okay. Sorry, I have this habit. <laughs> you guys you guys have any thoughts you want to offer? Uh, when you're dating, I guess, if, if there was a conflict over purpose in, and direction in life, one person wanted to go have this, had this purpose and direction, and the other person had this, and you're dating, and you had that and there was no reconciling it, then <clears throat> that seems kind of obvious. You know, you need to break it off or a difference in your spiritual, you know, one really wanted to follow Jesus and one wasn't interested at all, then they break it off. And, uh, but in marriage, when you get married, hopefully you've already worked all those out. So, but I know, yeah. Yeah, because it's real important to understand that if, if you guys are in conflict about the priority of God within your life, the foundation of your marriage, the direction of that, if you guys are in conflict in that, that won't resolve itself after you're married. Um, it just becomes, it could, apart from a divine work of the Holy Spirit and repentance on the part of the individual, that will not change. It will just harden like concrete. Um, so now if the conflict is over uh, issues of disagreement, um, you know, relational friction, things like that, uh, then you've got to be able to look at how do we choose to deal with this as a couple? Are we dealing with this in a healthy, holy, peacemaker-pursuing way? If you're not, and there's not the interest in understanding and pursuing that, instead, an individual or both individuals take on the peace-faker, peace-breaker 
type of uh, mentalities, then I'd say call it off. But if you guys are having conflict in the midst of your mar- uh, in the midst of a dating relationship, and you both are coming together, and you're saying, because you heard this sermon today, I really want this to be the the framework for our marriage, dear. Uh, and you both agree, we will choose to say, look at what the conflict is between us and say, God, what do you do want to do in my life, rather than blaming? And God, I humble or myself before you first, and you both are on that same page, then you're, you're good to go. Um, but if you're not on that same page, then get going elsewhere. So that would be my response. That answer the question? Yes. Can I ask a clarifying question real quick? Sure. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, where would you place that line? So you talked earlier about, uh, okay, we talked about the, the line, if uh, one person wants to follow Jesus, the other person does not. That's, that's pretty clear. That's a, that's a deal breaker. But what do you think when it comes to issues of how many kids do we want? Where do we want to live? What arm of the ministry do we want to be? And this person wants to be a missionary. This person wants to work in secular business. Like, wh- where does that line fall? And how do you determine that? Um, with very wise counselor. Uh, you know, it's... Yeah, yeah, you know, because there's there's degrees of weight of weight for per person. You know, if one person, you know, if Kim when Kim was and I were dating, she says I I'm feeling like God may want me to go to Columbia. I mean, I told her I says well, it's me or either me or Columbia. You know, me, baby. You know, I did. I really I was such an idiot. <laughs> and um. But, you know, uh, you know, we were able to kind of work through that piece. And I, thought, I think it's worked out well. Do you? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but if it's number of kids, one says two, the other says four, then there's compromise. And that's, a, that's, a, that's an important piece. that You've got to be able to ask the question, am I willing to compromise on the discretionary negotiable issues? If someone says, I'm not willing to compromise, I want four, kids and you know that's it then but you're not feeling like oh, I can't take four kids uh, I'm feeling two but the person insists on four then that's an indication that that person may end up being a peace breaker someone who just says I want my way or the highway so it's a maturity thing it's a you know, an ability to come together and reason well together and to come out with a win-win solution and sometimes you will need to have someone who can help you maybe process through, through what, is the, what are the non-negotiables and what are the negotiables. So, okay? Other questions? I had, I, yes. I had just one comment about dating. If you're arguing about really, if you're constantly arguing about insignificant issues, then there's, there's issues that you would need to deal with. Yes. Yeah, why are we always arguing? Because that, that, that reveals a spirit that says, I must win. So, all right. Okay, I, I love the story of uh, Nabal, Abigail, and David because um, I think it really has some great warnings against peace breakers. And as a peace faker, that takes the focus off me. <laughs> <laughs> so my question is, um, and you might want to elaborate a little bit, because you told half the story, and the second half of the story is really interesting, I think, in the whole Nabal-David thing. But um, So if you're a peace faker by personality, by style like I am, um, how do you 
what questions should you be asking yourselves? How, how do you get out of that? What, how do you break free from that okay, tendency? Okay, great question. There are, um, in, in the wiring of an individual's personality, um, there are, in terms of how we engage one another, there are directors, those who like to tell people what to do, persuaders, those who like to convince you what you know you need to do, or at least I want you to do. There are diplomats who say, I just want everyone to be happy together. Okay, so there's a bright side in which God and how God has wired us, but there's also what I call a dark side. And that dark side is where we take that which is good that God has given to us and we flip it and we use it for evil purposes unintended, unintentionally. So a diplomat is a person who says, come, let us all reason together, let's all just get along and hold hands and sing kumbaya. I mean, that's a bit oversimplified, but uh, you get the idea. Um, uh, when a diplomat says, um, I will not only just try to reason with people, but I will do everything within my power to accommodate people and make sure they're all happy um, and never deal with the issue, but just try to smooth things over, that's the dark side of that. And part of our growth and maturity as individuals is to understand what are those dark sides, what are those, those sides that are righteous, and how, how am I using this in a negative way so that I can repent of it and I can understand an alternative of how this, this good quality, say, of being a diplomat, um, engages in conflicted situations. Not so that we're trying to avoid things, bury things, cover things over, and just make everyone happy, but so that there's actually redemptive resolution that's taken place. So, that's a, that's a great question. Helen, would you take the, the uh, mic back to her? I'm sorry, I left you guys totally out of that. Okay, we'll get, we'll get him next. Uh, actually, I have uh, an answer to the previous question. Okay. Uh, when we were talking about uh, if uh, what we should when we're dating, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, we disagree. Well, now it can be a, a, a minor thing that we can disagree on, but if it's a major thing, like I feel like I'm called to the mission field, and the other person says no, I want to stay here. Well, I think that that's a major thing that you need to pray about. And if you definitely feel the Lord wants you on the mission field, that's time to break it off. Yes. And that's what I did. <laughs> and mm. look what the Lord had for me in Venezuela. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Happy years. Okay. Nate, right up here. If there's been conflict in the household over a number of years... Um, and you're a peacemaker, and you want to strive to be a peacemaker, um, are there, is there one of two ways to go about it? Either you wait for the conflict to rise up and then find, figure out a way to resolve it, or do you sort of confront the person in a peaceful way and address it in a gentle way, or do you, you wait just until it rises up again? Until it, you know, because in my mind, I would want to wait until it gets to the point where it's unhealthy, obviously, because if you confront the person in a small matter, they may say, why are you talking to me about this? This is not a, that big of an issue. 
and they may place the blame on you for starting the conflict in the first place. So waiting for the conflict to rise up to where it's obviously unhealthy, it's like, you know, it's, for me personally, I don't want it to wait, I don't want to wait until that happens, but it can just be a very messy business. Is there a good way or a bad way to deal with that? Well, the way I would approach that would be to go to the person and say, gee, what am I doing to contribute to this problem? And ask them to share with me their perspective of how come I'm, I'm, I'm the problem in the situation. And that opens up the dialogue so you can actually have a dialogue because you're not being defensive, and that will disarm their defense. It'll, it'll cause them to have a dialogue rather than to fight or flight. That makes some sense? Yeah, and I would not necessarily wait for the conflict to erupt and then you try to cage the animal. Um, I would do it in a time of peace. I mean, you can say, can we admit that we've got a problem here? And if not, at least I want to tell you that I think that we have a problem. This is how I'm experiencing this. And I would really like to talk about it in a, non, in, in a non-confrontational, non-emotional state. So, And they may. They may take offense to you. Um, but that, just understand that that's, a, that's a, a backstage strategy that says, you know what, we're just going to put this down because I don't want to deal with it. Or I'm right and you're wrong. And I'll dare, how dare you challenge that. So, but at least you're, 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 you're understanding possibly the strategy so that you can engage it in a healthy way. Um, the Bible says love covers a multitude of sins and so sometimes there's little things that bother us or that I feel like sometimes I just ignore. I just let it go. But I guess if there's a pattern of things that happens over and over again then and it's creating this resentment and and it happens again then, then it's time to bring it up. But if it's something that you can just let go and it doesn't build up that bitterness in you then let it go. Yes. In fact, we're going to talk about that in the next couple of weeks of how do you know what to let go and what not to let go. So, all right. Um, one more, and then that's, that'll be it. Oh, there's Sebastian. Should have had you up here. Uh, one quick question. Uh, what you were talking about, if you're in a conflict, you should look at your own issues and kind of look at those backstage issues. That seems like something easy to say, but harder to actually do, especially if you don't even know what those issues are. Yes. What is your perspective on how to best like, take care of and look at those backstage issues? I was just curious as far as your perspective. Um, the way in which I am learning to do this is just to pull back and say, God, what are you, what's rising up within me? What is it that's rising up within me? And why am I feeling the way I'm doing? So be quick to listen, slow to speak, and then slow to get angry. And there's a whole idea there, and it's wisdom, and it says, shut your mouth. Before, just because I saw a posting recently, just because it jumps into your brain doesn't mean it has to go out your mouth. Um, we need a filter, and we just need to have a reflective time. And this is so different than what we're used to. I will admit that we don't ever hear this. Um, 
So it's not necessarily part of our framework. We want someone comes against us, we want to go against them. Someone disrespects me, I want to go against them. Someone doesn't show love to me, I want to go against them. Boom, react, deal with it. Um, but God says, you know what, there's a better way, there's a more redemptive way to deal with it. Pause, step back, and then spend some time with the Lord. Spend some time with wise counsel and say, this is what I'm feeling, this is how it feels to me, and I don't know why it is. And yeah, I don't doubt that the other person has some, some issues to deal with, but how do I deal with my issues so that then when I go and engage this person, then I can deal with them in a healthy, healthier way. Um, now, this is a process that is worked out and worked, must be worked through our, the fabric of our souls and of our lives and of our character. It's character-changing. Um, it's not just a strategy, but it's something that begins to transform our character. And that, that is a lot. That is hard, hard stuff. So, did I answer it? So, yeah. So, thanks, guys. I want to close with just a couple of thoughts. Um, so you guys can go sit down if you want. Uh, and this really ties in well with what Sebastian just asked. And it's the question of how do we worship in the midst of conflict? Stuff like this. And I was thinking about this, and Kim and I were praying this last week together, and um, as I was praying through, we were praying for some people that we're working with, that we meet with, and I just started worshiping Christ. I said, thank you, Christ, because you are the authority above all. You are working everywhere. Paul speaks in Philippians 1.6. He says, God is, has what God has started, He will complete. He is working. Philippians 2, He is at work within us both to will and to do to His good pleasure. So how do we worship God in the midst of conflict with our spouse or with our kids or with others? We won, we come together. And I had a great time worshiping God as we were praying and say, God, I thank You because this is who You are. You are bigger. You have more authority, more power, more perspective over this situation than I do. And secondly, God, I know that you are working. You are working in my life and you are working in these people's lives. And I thank you and that's my confidence and I'm worshiping you because of who you are in the midst of this. Okay? So that's how we worship and that infuses us with, with energy. It infuses us with perspective. It doesn't leave us hopeless. It leaves us hopeful. It doesn't leave us helpless it leaves us dependent upon God because we know that God is working in this person's life. God is working in my life. Now, whether or not the resolution will ever come about in the way in which I would love to see it and envision it, I don't know. It depends upon what God is doing and whether or not that person is willing to respond. But we know this, that God is working. And the question I've got for us is, are we willing, are we willing it's great to hear maybe some helpful thoughts and some scripture on how to deal with this. And we can get charged up and we say, yes, God, I'm all in. But when we start to enter, leave the mountaintop and go into the desert and we start to experience conflict, what are we willing to do with that? Are we willing to say, God, work this into the fabric of my life? Or are we willing to be like the Israelites who left Sinai, went into the desert and said, we, you know what, you, this is too hard. This, is too, this work is too deep. You're asking too much of us. And we want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back to those old strategies. 
See, this stuff that I'm giving to you folks is hard, hard stuff. At least I have found it hard. I won't speak for you. I have found it difficult to try to understand God and integrate the gospel, the transforming work of the gospel and the Holy Spirit into the, the complexities of my own life. That's hard stuff. And it's not easy. I'm trying to make sure I'm, I'm connecting the dots for us so that we can understand this and engage it well. And so that therefore when we leave here, we begin to experience this stuff, then we can say, God, do this work in my life right now even though it's not easy. Even though it's not easy because my first inclination right now is to blame her. And her inclination is to blame me. And I want my revenge. I want my respect. She wants her love. I want, I want, I want. I'm not getting my way. What, what, Martin, what's that revealing about what's going on in the backstage of your life? Boy, I am one messed up person. Regardless of who is at fault. Okay? Make sense? Father, we want to start out just by worshiping you, Lord, and just saying, I don't know what's going on in our lives. I know that many of us probably have some hard, hard things. But Lord, we worship you because you are over it all. And Lord, you are doing a work that is deep within our lives. You have promised that that which you have started, you will complete. And Lord, you are doing a work. And Lord, I thank you. Help us, Lord, to have enough of an understanding to know what the next step is. So that, Lord, we don't rebel. We don't sit back and say, get stuck and say, I want to go back to Egypt. But instead, I say, Lord, I want to take that next step. And then when you reveal it, the next step, and then the next step, and then the next step. Father, do a work within us, for we are your disciples. And, Lord, we covet. We covet that title of being sons of God. Not in the terms of salvation, but, Lord, in terms of reflecting the character of our Father the heart of our Father towards our brothers and sisters, towards our families, towards our children. Lord, we want to see you work. We want to see you work, Lord. For your honor and your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.